Well, in Matthew 3, we can continue to read more about the John the Baptist, John the Baptist, and his uh, ministry uh, that took place uh, during his life. And so in, in Matthew 3, it says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. It goes on to say, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So John the Baptist was the cousin of Jesus, if you didn't know that. Uh, John's mother's name was Elizabeth, uh, and she was uh, some sort of relative of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And John wasn't just that. He was also kind of this eccentric, out-in-the-wilderness hippie. You know, anytime you're eating some locusts and wild honey and dressed like a vegan Chewbacca, like he was, uh, I think it's... Safe to say that, that he was an interesting figure, but he wasn't just a figure who was interesting. He was a figure who there was a great movement of God happening around him and under his care. And so as he was in the wilderness uh, preaching this message, calling people to repent, to confess, to be baptized, as that was happening, individuals were, were coming to faith, turning from darkness to light. And as that was happening at the individual level with spiritual renewal, that then multiplied and multiplied and multiplied so much so that everybody throughout the region, everybody throughout Israel was hearing about this man who was preaching in the wilderness where people were experiencing life change so much that it was revival. That's what we're kind of stepping into this morning. And as we do that, we want to remind, like we're a church that desires that same thing. When we started five and a half years ago, it would be our hope that we would witness spiritual renewal happening in our own hearts, that as people were coming to church, they would hear the word of God proclaimed. As people were coming to Salt Company, they'd hear the word of God proclaimed, and as it was being proclaimed, the Spirit would be doing a work in individual lives. And for some of you, that's exactly what's happened. But our vision isn't that small. We also want to be a place that experiences that, not just with an individual in this room, but we want to see that expand beyond these walls of this you know, factory of a church that we have. We want it to go out beyond these walls, onto campus, throughout the city, so that we can be a church that is reaching and raising up every generation. Why? Because we want to see the same spiritual revival that was happening around John in our place now. And Columbia is an excellent place for us to be doing that. Two in ten people in Columbia go to church on a Sunday, two to four times a month. Eight out of ten do not. Who are those eight out of ten people in your life that need to see and experience that renewal that could lead to revival? That's the tension that I want in our hearts this morning as we walk through this text, because that's the heart that John the Baptist had for his people in that time, that people would go from darkness to light. And so this morning, uh, the question that we're answering in the text is how do we witness the movement of God like John? And so the topic is learning the secret of spiritual revival. Revival was happening around him. We can see it here. How can we experience that today? That's where we're going. So let me pray for us, and then we'll begin to walk through the passage with one another. And so, God, uh, we thank you that we can be in here. Uh, we, we meet often, right? We meet once a week, Lord. 
And I pray that the gospel message would never become old and that as it may become old in our hearts, that we would feel that conviction from you to keep seeking you and to keep impressing this faith that we've experienced in you into our hearts so that others around us would see that joy and that love and that hope that isn't found in us, but is found in you, God. And so I just pray that we'd I'd be able to open up this passage and see that revival can happen within us and beyond us through your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you haven't uh, turned to John 1, you can do so. That's where we're going to be at for most of the morning uh, in John 1 from verses 19 to 28, I believe. And so as you're turning there, if you're not there, I'll do a little bit of the context work, fill us in where we're at. So the Apostle John, the friend of Jesus, has written this book, this letter, to a group of people who were pretty resistant against Jesus. They were skeptics who were struggling to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And so John writes this letter uh, that's full of a ton of verses that are familiar to us, John 3.16. I mean, John 14 comes to mind where Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is John's book that he's written to people so that they would see Jesus was who he said he was. And so last week, uh, Matt hit on how to behold Jesus. The week before that, talked about how to embrace the life of God in Jesus. And again, this week, we're talking about learning the secret of spiritual revival so that this faith, this renewal that's happened in us doesn't stop with us. And so there's uh, an outline up on the screen. Uh, how are we going to see that secret of spiritual revival? It's through surrender to the Messiah by exchanging who we could be, maybe should be, or want to be for who God calls us to be. And then secondly, we'll look at surrender to the mission through exchanging what we could do, should do, or want to do for what God calls us to do. And so that in mind, let's uh, begin to talk about that surrender to the Messiah with one another. And so uh, starting in chapter 1 at verse 19, we'll read up through 22 again. And it says, And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Some of the first observations that I think are important to make as we look through this passage is who are the characters that are coming up? First, we can see there's some skeptics. There's the people wondering, okay, who's this guy out in the wilderness? And so it brings up the Levites. It brings up the priests. They've been sent there by the Pharisees. Okay, so we can see there's that group of people, those who are skeptical. We can see there's John the Baptist, the, the guy who's out there declaring this message. And then they're referring to this coming Messiah, which we know would be Jesus, right? And so those are the three characters that are kind of going on in the text. And then as far as the scene that's taking place, we've already alluded to it a little bit. But what's taking place is there's this guy dressed up in the interesting outfit out in the wilderness that's preaching this message and people all across Israel are going out there from their existing you know, temple that they've been attending. They're going out there to hear this guy speak. And so some of that uh, pursuit that the Pharisees and the Levites and priests have, part of that pursuit to go out there is because they, they want to protect their, their fold. They want to protect the temple that they're overseeing. Okay? So imagine if instead of preaching here, I was out in the wilderness and all of a sudden, everybody in all the churches in Missouri started to go out and figure out who's that hairy guy out there who's preaching about God. 
It would make sense if church leaders went out there and said, okay, well, let's figure out what are this guy's credentials. And so the scene taking place is he's been preaching out there, and then there's some church leaders that are trying to figure out, okay, who is this guy? Some of that might have been honest motive. Some of that was probably a motive of pride of like, he's taking our people. What is his message? And so that's the scene that's taking place. Uh, The second set of observations that we can have is that John definitely knew who he wasn't, and John definitely knew who he was. Okay, so he knew who he wasn't. We can look at verse 20, and it says, He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Like John, John knew he wasn't this coming Messiah, right? He knew that he wasn't this person that the Old Testament talked about, this king of kings, this lord of lords, this prince of peace, this wonderful counselor, this coming king. He knew he wasn't that individual. And so he's saying, I'm not going to deny that he isn't here, but I am going to confess that I'm not him. That's why it's kind of worded weird there when it's like confess but not deny, but confess. That's him hinting at he is here. I'm not denying his presence but he's confessing, I'm not that dude. I, I'm not that guy. And so he's saying, I'm not the Messiah. And so the Levites and the priests are like, okay, phew. It's not him. Who else could he be? Are you Elijah? He says no. In 2 Kings 2, Elijah goes to be with God. He doesn't die. He just kind of is taken up from the earth through this weird scene that happens. And then in Malachi, it talks about how someday Elijah's going to come back. And so the Levites and the priests, they knew this. They, re- they really knew their Old Testament, right? And so they're out there trying to figure out, okay, are you that guy? Are you Elijah? Are you literally Elijah back here? You're, you're dressed in that hairy outfit like Elijah was, and you're eating some weird stuff. There seems to be some parallels. You're calling people to repent. Maybe you're Elijah. And he's like, nope, I'm not him. What about the prophet? In Deuteronomy, Moses talks about a coming prophet who's really referring to Jesus, But he talks about this coming prophet, and they ask, are you the prophet? And he says, no. John understood who he wasn't. At the same time, he understood who he was. We can look at verses 26 and 27. This is subtle, but it's in here. In 26, it says, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me. That is Jesus, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy of to untie. John knew that he was someone who must surrender to the Messiah. He knew that coming after him would be this one who would wear some sandals that he wasn't worthy to untie. He had humility and surrender to the Messiah. He had a posture of, I am nothing and you are everything before the Messiah and at that time, I mean, that, that was like not even servants were really allowed to take off people's sandals, clean people's feet. Like they just knew, didn't do that stuff. Like they didn't have shoes in the same way. They had chacos, open toe, right? They wouldn't do well in the workplace back there because, you know, got to have closed toe shoes. But anyway, like so they're back there walking around with dirty feet. And John is saying, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandal of this king. He had this posture of humility towards the Messiah. And we can see that throughout John's ministry, that he understood that he was the servant and not the Savior. And because of that, he diverted all of his attention. Even in this scene, he's diverting all of the attention away from himself. 
in John 3.30. This will be on the screen as well. We hear John saying later on in his ministry, he, that is Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. He knew that his role, though important, would be temporary, and he knew that his role was going to begin best through surrender to the Messiah, that coming king. This is the first key and secret of revival happening in John and in the people around, were that they were willing to exchange the identity of who they could have been or maybe who others thought they should have been. They were willing to exchange that identity for who God called them to be. And we see that in John. We can look at John and see how when he's out in that wilderness, he really could have taken those thousands of people that were gathering, and he could have started this church called, you know, John the Baptist University Church. And voila, he becomes this great figure where people are just attracted to his preaching style, and they start to follow after him, and they're in love with his ministry. He could have taken that upon his shoulders. He could have said, yeah, I actually am Elijah. That's why I look like him. But he didn't. He exchanged who he maybe thought that he could be for who God called him to be. He understood, I need to be surrendered to the Messiah. And so he went before his own ministry with this posture of humility. Why? Because he believed that he needed to surrender. He knew that revival wasn't going to be happening if there wasn't a surrender to the one who the revival is all about. So we can see that in John, and we can see that in the people around him the people who were coming to faith out in the wilderness, they were also willing to exchange maybe who they had been for who God called them to be. And for those people specifically, he was preaching to Jews who had been titled the people of God. He was preaching to Jews who had been in certain seasons following after God. And now he has this ministry where he's calling them out and saying, you might have that name, but you don't have that heart. And so they went from this place of just going by the name of or the people of God to becoming the people of God through their surrender to the Messiah as well because they were willing to exchange who they could have been or who they were for who God had truly called them to be. And that's kind of the underlying question that we have to be asking ourselves this morning is like, am I someone who has exchanged who I maybe want to be or who I could be or who others say I should be? Have I exchanged that for who God calls me to be in his word? Have I confessed with my mouth that Jesus is Lord? Or am I someone who hasn't made that decision? All of us have certain gifts, certain aspirations, certain places that we're in in life. Some of us are younger, some of us are older, some of us are becoming established, others are more established in life, some of us are learning to be successful, work a job, others have been working a job for years. And we all have these things that describe us, things that we go to during the day, work, school, whatever. But then we also have this identity within us. And is that identity the defining thing about you the same as what John is modeling here? Are you first one who's surrendered to the Messiah? Are you first someone who has this identity as a child of God? And if that that isn't where you're at, then this morning, that's kind of this thing to be thinking through. Well, where am I at in my relationship with the Lord? Do I have one? And if you have been walking with Jesus, kind of the tension to hold in your heart is, okay, if I'm identifying as a child of God because I've committed my life to Christ, if I'm identifying as that, Do I also have this competing identity that I maybe wouldn't want to admit 
whether it's a career thing or a school thing? Is there kind of this dual citizenship that's going on in your heart? Where it's like, yeah, I'm a believer, and so I'm a citizen of God's kingdom. But also, while I'm here on earth, I'm a citizen who's trying to be seen and known in this world and noticed in this world. And therefore, I'm really, I say I'm a believer and running hard after the Lord, and I'm in the word some, but the the defining characteristic of me in the workplace isn't really a, a godly man, but more so a man who works hard and is seen as successful. And maybe that's the thing in your heart that trumps everything else rather than this humble identity of a child of God before the Lord doesn't mean that we can't become successful. It's just saying that our identity isn't to be found in what we do or be found in what other people say we should be or be found in what we want our identity to be. But as we see in God's word, he calls us to have our identity in him as his children. And if you're in a place where that hasn't been the case, then looking at John, as a humble, surrender sort of guy to the Messiah. He didn't sweat his way towards grace, towards salvation, towards surrender, nor did he live some second identity, some dual citizenship sort of thing, just so he could be known in this world. He wanted to be adored by the Lord and to adore the Lord. That was his surrender rather than anything else. And so we have to, with John, be able to strip ourselves bare and divert all of our attention to Christ and surrender to the Messiah because we're never going to see renewal and revival in our own heart if we're busy stiff-arming God and living out a competing identity. Have you exchanged who you could be or have been for who God calls you to be as a child of him? So that's what John was doing, and that's what we're called to do if we want to see renewal and revival. The second secret to spiritual revival is surrender to mission. And so right after John has confessed he's not this person, not this person, not this person, then we get to verse 22, and they're like, okay, who are you then? Verse 23, he said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And Isaiah 40 It says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. John is saying that he's the voice crying out in the wilderness. He's saying, I am the highway that's making the way for the Lord. He is the hype man for the hero, right? He's the red carpet for the celebrity that is Jesus Christ. He is showing up in fulfillment of this Old Testament prophecy, which Isaiah was written like 800 BC, something like this. This is sometime around 30 AD. And John is declaring, I am the voice in the wilderness that's crying out about this coming Lord, this coming King, this coming hope. He's saying, I'm not the hope, but I'm a voice for the hope. And so he surrendered to the Messiah with his heart. We're called to do the same, but he also surrendered to the Messiah with the mission. And his mission was to be a voice. His mission was not to be the real deal, 
the guy that everybody listened to, the guy that others turned to. No, he said, I'm the voice that's crying out for people to turn to him. And so he understood his mission well. What exactly did being a voice in a highway mean in John's ministry? He was defined by three things. He was calling people to confess and admit something. He was calling people to admit that there's a, tr- a holy triune God who's been living since eternity began and even before and even after. And he's been in relationship with himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's saying that has been in existence and that is who we need to turn to. And he's saying, humanity, we are here because we are broken, we are lowly, we are lost, we're confused. And so first he was, he was calling people to confess. There's a distance between us down here and God. But he doesn't stop there and just say, yeah, admit the brokenness. He then invites them and says, repent and turn. Admit that there's distance between you and the Lord. And with a humble heart, turn to him. And so he's calling people to confess. He's calling people to repent, which means turn. Turn back to God, people of God. And then finally, he's baptizing those who do that as an outward symbol of the inward work that the Spirit had done in them. And so that's what his mission was. That's what John was living and breathing for, to communicate that truth of this coming Messiah and to send people in a direction of humility before that Messiah shows up on the scene. Before Jesus gets there, he's saying, hey, repent, confess, ready your hearts before the Lord. That was his mission. And we can see that in Mark 1 very clearly. It talks about John the Baptist there as well. It says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. John surrendered to the mission as a voice for the Lord. But John could have been doing something different with his time, right? He, he could have been investing his heart, investing his energy, investing his time in something else. He could have been trying to make his name great. He could have been like, oh yeah, I'm going to do that ministry for a little bit, and then I'm just going to kind of live the rest of life for myself. He could have done a lot of things with his time. But what did he do? He exchanged what he could have been doing. He exchanged what other people maybe said he should have been doing. He exchanged that for what God had called him to do. And so the surrender to mission happens. Sorry, spiritual revival happens when we're willing to not only surrender to the Messiah, but when we're ready to also surrender to the mission. Have you exchanged what you want to do or could do for what he calls you to do? Is that something that marks your life when you think about how the hours of your day are lived? Do you spend time living out some of this stuff that John the Baptist was modeling so well? Do you spend time being a light to broken people? When you consider how you spend your average Tuesday, your average Saturday, your average Sunday afternoon, Think through, like, like, how do I live my life? Do I live with this sense of urgency and the sense of compassion for people who don't know the Lord? Whether they're people who are, are just broken in life and they don't have it figured out because they just got out of a relationship and they're hurting. 
It, sometimes it's easy to pursue people in that place because they've already been broken. But do we have a voice in the darkness where people think that their life is already full? Like when you think about the different relatives or friends that you might have or the eight out of 10 people in Columbia that are walking around here in this city, maybe they, they don't need Jesus because they already have the good life. They don't need Jesus because it's already full. Do we interact with those individuals or do we just wait for someone to be shattered? And then it's, ah, maybe if I get enough courage in the moment, I'm going to reach out to them. We see John declaring this message over people, even if they were established. He was being in surrender to the mission. And my fear for the 21st century Christian, for the American Christian, for myself, my fear is that we do a fantastic job of embracing Sunday mornings. We do a fantastic job of embracing community groups. We do a fantastic job of maybe reading the word of God and meeting with the Lord. But do we do a fantastic job of reaching the world that he's called us to reach? When we live in a city that's so lost and so broken, and I don't, and even on campus, right? Like, I don't know how many students on campus are seeking after Jesus, but it's probably not more than, I don't know, 3,000, 5,000. And there's 30,000 students. What about the other 25,000? Do we have a heart for them? Do we want to go and be a light? Do we want to be a voice in the wilderness and engage in the mission? Our tendency, my tendency, is to love Sunday mornings, to love community groups, and to love that intimate time before the Lord and, and before others. But so often I don't frame that time in such a way so that it'd send me and fill me out into this broken city, this broken country, this broken world, so that other people might be able to know, love, and obey Jesus as well. And I think the reason that we don't follow through with the mission is because we don't want to give up what we want to do. We don't want to give up maybe what our dual citizenship identity is fastened with. We don't want to give up hours at work. We don't want to give up awkwardness between family. We don't want to give up awkwardness between friends. And it's like, well, I'd rather just leave that friendship kind of good. And we forget to engage their heart and we forget to look at people sometimes as lost. And we forget that we have the compassionate love of Christ that we can share with them. They might not accept it, but we are called to deliver the mail, right? So are we being that? So often I think we're not because we think that it's either an overwhelming task because I don't know God's word enough or it's an overwhelming task because, well, I'm not God and it's an overwhelming task because I've tried that before and somebody laughed at me or I tried that before and it didn't work and I tried that before and, you know, they walked with Jesus for a couple years and then three years later they, they walked away and I don't understand that and because they did that once and I'm just not going to do it anymore. Like a lot of times we, we have that mentality because we just, we get discouraged. And even when there's discouragement, that doesn't mean our mission ought to change means we cry out to the Lord even more. And so sometimes it's too overwhelming and other times it's too underwhelming. Or it's like, well, it's just, do I really need to do it? Like, I'm not really an evangelist. That's not really my gift. My gift is more so like, I give a lot of money to charity or to the church or this or that. 
Or my gift is just serving. And then when we do that really well, then we think, well, then because I'm serving well, then I just don't really have to talk about Jesus. And that's, you know, that's that person's gift. And so I'll let them do that. But the thing is, they don't have your family. You have your family. The thing is, they don't have your job. You have your job. They don't have your class. You have your class. And so with that, we get to enter in with the Lord to that sweet task of sharing the love of Christ. It doesn't mean every conversation becomes, do you know Jesus? And if not, but it does mean we have a heart that's aware of where people are at and that we're willing to have that conversation and that we are a friend to lean on when maybe their world does shatter. That's what John was doing. That's what Jesus did in his ministry. And I think we get away with letting it be too underwhelming or too overwhelming because so often life gets busy. And we have our nine to five, we have our family, we have our quiet time, we have our Bible study. And with those things, maybe personal wellness, with those things, we then forget to engage the lost and we forget to live that out and be the light. Again, sometimes it's that busyness. Sometimes it's fear of not wanting to be the camel-dressed man in the wilderness. We're not called to be that now. Though if you wore that outfit, that would be cool. But we are called to be on mission with the Lord, and that's where renewal is going to happen in individual lives, and that's where revival is going to happen across this church and across this city and campus. And the thing that happens when all that noise is going on, all of our busyness, the thing that was just in my mind as I was kind of writing this sermon this week, I was like, you know what? Satan loves the fact that we are busy. And he loves the fact that our community group time might seem to be enough in our hearts. And Satan loves the fact that we're not bold. And I really do believe that so often within our culture, within our place, within my own life, Satan is laughing at how I'm living because he knows that I'm not engaging with lost people who need to hear the love of Christ. And as I was writing through the, the message and thinking out loud, just like, that just kept coming to mind. Like, he's laughing, and it's joy in the enemy's heart when we are wrapped into things that then disengage us from being a light. And that sucks that, that we let that happen in our lives over and over, but I'm right there with you where it's just like, man, I really want to be a light, but then we get in moments, and we come up with excuses, and then... In those moments, that's to Satan's joy that we like, I was going to say something, but then I didn't. And so through John's example, I think we have such an invitation so that when the enemy's joy might be happening, may have happened in our life, we can be redeemed from that and become faithful people and enter in on mission. 
I think it's the enemy's joy that we say it's a moral problem or a mental health problem when really it's a Messiah problem and a mission problem. And so what if we began to confess that tendency that we're skipping out on being a light? We're skipping out on being that voice in the wilderness. We're skipping out on being that red carpet. Skipping out on being the herald, the one speaking the good news. And so what if we started to do that? What if we started to surrender to the mission more because we've surrendered to the Messiah, knowing that other people need to experience him? The Bible doesn't say dreams and goals and self-care aren't important, but it does have this driving purpose that's far beyond just that. It goes beyond having a nice degree, a nice home, a nice family, a nice life. God's purpose for us goes beyond just being anxiety-free or worry-free or never sad or avoiding conflict or avoiding resistance or weariness. God desires that renewal would happen in individual lives so that revival would happen within our church, within this city, and throughout the world so that more and more more and more people would be reached and raised up to follow after the Lord in every generation. And so the takeaway this morning is the simple statement, sought people, seek people. God sought out John the Baptist to have a certain role and to be surrendered to him. God had sought him out way back in the times of Isaiah. God had sought him out before that. And John came he surrendered to the Lord, and then he called other people to seek the Lord. And so he was sought by God, and because he was sought by God, he then sought other people. And so for some of you, maybe you haven't been walking with Jesus before. You're new to the idea of Christianity. For you this morning, it would be considering, do I want to surrender to this Messiah, this sent one from the Old Testament who kept coming up in this old prophecy stuff and then fulfilled in Jesus Christ? Maybe this morning is surrendering to him, confessing that Jesus is the Lord, knowing that that's where redemption and hope and life is found. He died and was resurrected so that we could do the same through his spirit. And for others, if you've been walking with Jesus for a while, you've made that commitment, God has sought you out. If you are that individual, then this morning to ask yourself this question of, okay, how am I doing? I've been sought by God, but how am I doing at seeking others so that they might know him? How am I doing in this city of helping more people know and understand the truth of God's word and the reality of Jesus? How am I doing? at that? Am I seeing my workplace as ministry ground where I can help others know and understand God? Am I using my classroom for that, my dorm for that, my family for that? And if that's no, then the invitation this morning is to, to begin to walk in that faithfully like John was doing. It's not always going to be easy. It's not always going to be the most fun thing to do, but it is going to be the satisfying thing to do because it's what God has called us to do, to surrender to him every day, surrender to the mission. Who are you seeking out? Who would you befriend and love and care for and find common ground with so that they could know Christ? Who's the eight out of ten? 
our prayer at Anthem and in the churches of Columbia would be that we'd be faithful, that we'd open our hearts and eyes and surrender to God, and that we'd open our mouths and our whole being to his mission. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I I thank you for uh, just the words that you've written uh, to us, God, that you've, in love, uh, written us a, a big, long letter, 66 books to guide us in life, God. Life is scary, it's intimidating, it's uh, something we're born into and we don't understand, God. And you have given us uh, this word so that we do. And God, we thank you for that. And I pray uh, that as we think through what's been laid in front of us today from John, that we would uh, see the simplicity of surrendering to you, the Messiah, the sent one. And God, would we feel that conviction from your spirit to also surrender to the mission that you've called us upon, God. God, would we be willing to exchange who we could be for who you've called us to be, and would we be willing to exchange what we could be doing with our time for what you've called us to do? In Jesus' name, amen.